Please be seated. This past week, my family and I were on vacation uh, down in South Carolina. We were two states away. And Monday, I went to uh, a restaurant that had internet access, checked my mail, and um, began seeing the news of, of what happened in Virginia Tech and was just stunned and sad. Um, I'm sure for many of you, your responses and your reaction was the same on that day and the days later this week as that unfolded. We got back in town on Friday, and as I've been back in town, I, I, I've, just, I've just seen up close of a little more of what it feels like to be back in Virginia in, in the middle of all of this, and I've heard stories about um, even for our students at William & Mary, you can't be a student at William & Mary or another school in Virginia and not have a whole list of friends who went to Virginia Tech who were either um, affected directly or indirectly. So I began to have a better perspective on us, even in this city, thinking about this. Uh, and then in the back of my head, as Elizabeth and I talked about this, we could, we could hear in the back of our head a friend of ours named Jeffer from years ago in another city who was not a Christian, and he said, the, the few times that I've been to church, why does it feel like Christianity is so detached from the real world that you can't actually wrestle with the real questions the world sends at you? And so I realized we need to, we need to talk about, at least in some way, what happened this week. We were going to start a series this week on the vision of our church, and so we're going to put that off another week. So the sermon that you see advertised in our bulletin, we're going to, it's a preview of coming attractions. We're going to get to that passage next Sunday. Uh, but this Sunday, this morning, uh, we're going to look at a different passage. We're going to look at Psalm 10. You'll find this, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, on page 451 of your Pew Bible. Psalm 10, and as, as we get ready to read this, let's, uh, let's pray together and ask that Jesus would open our eyes to see what he has for us here. Let's pray. Father, we, we need to hear from you this morning, and we pray that you would speak to us. Um, some of us may well be so shaken this week that we're not sure that you have anything to say about the events of this week and the hardness of our world. Some of us just don't want to think about it. Um, so, Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you would give us light, and more importantly, you would give us yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 10. <clears throat> Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. And under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. 
He sits in ambush in the villages and hiding places. He murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. As we look at the psalm this morning, here's here's what we're going to see. We're going to look at a faithful question, and then we're going to listen to three voices. We're going to listen to the cry of the wicked, the cry of the righteous, and the cry of Jesus. Okay? A faithful question in three voices. First, our faithful question this is in verse 1. First, though, think about what are the questions that came up for you this week? Or what are the questions that maybe came up for your friends this week? At what point in the week did you or somebody you know say, how in the world could God possibly be in this? How could God even exist in the middle of a world where things like this happen in our own backyard? Now, if you didn't think much about that question, is it, is it because you were scared to even ask it? Did you feel that it was somehow unchristian or unfaithful to ask a question like that? Where is God in the middle of this? Or maybe some of us, do you hold up a, a tragedy filter between you and the rest of the world? Do you do all that you can to insulate yourself from the evil and the brokenness and the pain of the world around us? Or if, or if not a filter, uh, maybe an expansion gap. You've seen, you can, you can look down on our floor, you see slabs of concrete and the space in between them. So that um, over time as concrete expands that the rest of it, the adjacent slab, won't be cracked, won't be touched. Have you got this buffer gap between you and the world so that as the world comes under the pressure, the heat of the things that happen in this world, it won't touch you. It won't get close enough to make you start to crack. Do you like keeping this comfortable distance from the world? When things like this, what has happened this week, happen nearby, it, it, it brings to our mind and it brings to our um, immediate attention the kind of brokenness and damage and violence and oppression that's happening around the world literally every day. In the wake of what happened in Virginia Tech this week, I failed to notice two days later uh, when there was a series of car bombs in Baghdad and 170 people were killed and over 200 people were injured all in one day in that one city. Why didn't I notice that? Because car bombs happen every day in other parts of the world. We get used to hearing them on the news and we begin to filter them out. 
You know, we're used to violence like that over there, but not violence like that over here. But the events of our state this week leave us asking questions now that the rest of the world has to ask all the time. Does God really exist? Is he really present? How does he speak into tragedy like this? Just this morning, more car bombs in Baghdad. Killed 13, injured 82. Are you scared that if you start to pay attention to the brokenness of the world, whether it's here or abroad, with your neighbors across the state, across the world, that there's going to be this hairline crack of uncertainty and fear that's going to begin to widen in your life? And your certainty about God's going to begin to crumble. And maybe you're worried that you're going to find yourself standing on one side of this crack that has become a chasm and God's on the other. And you're not, you're not sure how to get back. And you're not sure that you want to. And you're not sure that God really exists anymore. Are you scared that maybe you're going to end up there angry, maybe cracked yourself and questioning your faith? So maybe the hard questions for you this week came in the wake of Virginia Tech. Maybe it came from looking around you at the world around us. Maybe it came um, much more immediately to you in your own life, with your family, your friends. Maybe it's your failing health. Maybe it's your struggling marriage. Maybe it's some other pain in your life that has brought these questions to the surface for you this week. Maybe the events of this week didn't send you into a personal theological crisis. But at some level, maybe you thought this, I hope my friends that are not Christians don't ask me any questions this week because I don't think I have any answers for them. And I don't really want that to be exposed. I have no idea what I'd even begin to say. Because fundamentally, if we find ourselves feeling that, our question is, is there any good news to share? I mean, does the gospel really have power when things are really falling apart? Not just when our work is not going as smoothly as we wish, not just when exams are upon us, not just, ex not just when we're sick, but when things seem radically, drastically, tragically wrong. Does the gospel have anything to say into that? Okay, our questions this week. Let's look in verse 1 at the psalmist question. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Look at what he's asking. Lord, why are you hiding where were you when a gunman walked through a school and killed 32 people over the course of several hours? Were you just standing at a distance watching? Were you hiding? Why does it seem like you're around when things go well, but you are so absent when things go badly? Why does it seem like when things are tragic, you aren't even in the building? Why, Lord? He's looking around at the chaos of his world or his own life, and he's asking you, where are, he's asking, where are you, God? Now, when we look at Psalm 10, is that what you expected this week when you opened your Bible, that this is how it might speak to us? The Bible voicing the questions that we have and maybe voicing them with more honesty and pointedness than most of us have the courage to say them ourselves. The psalmist asking these kinds of hard questions. Maybe we don't feel that's respectable or even allowable, but the psalmist doesn't let that get in the way for him. Look at what he's saying. He's accusing God of being distant, of ignoring what's going on. He's questioning. He's crying out. Can we talk like that? Can we speak words like this to God ourselves? Are we allowed to say stuff like that? We all think it, but are we actually allowed to say it? and do what the psalmist does, which is to pray it. Are we allowed to voice our real confusion 
and are real doubts. Now here's the thing. If you're not a Christian or maybe recently become a Christian, the answer to that question might seem obvious to you. Of You might be thinking, if there's, if there's a God, he better be able to answer questions like this. The big core questions about his goodness, about his power, about his presence. But here's the thing. For a lot of us, if you've been a Christian for a long time, some of us begin to feel like these questions are just somehow radically inappropriate. We've still got them. We still have the questions. But we've subtly gotten the message that we don't, as Christians, ask those questions. Because Christians should be people who are filled with faith. And being filled with faith means burying questions like this. As if God somehow can't take it from his people to be asked like this. You've ever seen on TV when you watch a press conference, maybe with a politician who's gotten him or herself in trouble somehow and being asked questions by uh, the media. And you know what it's like to see that when the reporter's questions are getting more and more pointed and the politician's responses are getting more and more vague and evasive. And you just know the person's either trying to, trying to cover up something or they're somehow out of their depth and they, they just can't handle the situation that's going on around them. And we think sometimes that God is that bumbling politician. He can't really account for what's going on in the world. He can't quite account for the pain and for the suffering and the struggle, and he can't give us a straight answer. Now, for the politician who's floundering, what happens next? His staff immediately goes into crisis mode and begins the media spin, damage control, to try to resurrect his image. And some of us as Christians think we're that staff. God looks bad, and so we've got to scramble somehow to rehabilitate his image so that he doesn't look bad, or at the very least, so our own commitment to Christ doesn't look foolish to the world around us. Remember years ago, the commercials for Charmin toilet paper? With the little kids, it would take this toilet paper, and they'd, they'd wrap their bodies in it, or they'd stuff it down the seat of their pants, so that when they fell, they, they wouldn't get bruised. They'd be protected. Charmin, it does even that. Okay, why is it somehow that, that as Christians we think we're God's Charmin? You know? That we need to somehow insulate him or insulate ourselves. That we have to be wrapped up and protected because we can't and he can't take the hard knocks and the hard questions of our lives. We're afraid our God might not be able to answer. But the psalmist here in our psalm, uh, he utterly dismisses such foolishness. Look at his questions. He doesn't think God needs to be coddled or protected. He doesn't think it was his job to spin the facts in a vain attempt to protect God's reputation. In other words, he knew and he trusted that God is in fact God. And so he felt free to ask God the questions that were most pressing. And the psalmist teaches us that faithful people faithfully ask God the hard questions about life. And that is not the opposite of faith. Look at this psalmist. For him, it is an expression of his faith. Because where does he go when he has his questions? To his God, the only one he can come to, the only one who might be able to answer his questions. And so you and I can and you and I should ask God the hard questions about our life as well. You don't have to suppress them. You don't have to deny them. And you don't have to bury your head in the sand. In fact, following God in a fallen and broken and hurting world means that we are going to inevitably have to ask these questions. So let me ask it again. If you don't ever find yourself asking questions like this, why is that? Is it because you think you're being respectful of God when the truth is your God is just too small to handle those questions? 
Is it possible you think you're somehow being spiritual when you're really just being scared? God can take our questions. And the psalmist reminds us that God can take our questions. Okay, now, there are three voices that speak to us in this passage. His questions are on the table. Where are you? Were you hiding yourself? Were you not present? And in response, we, we, we hear the voices of, of three different people here. First, we see the voice of the wicked, and it gets a lot of airtime, verses 2 through 11. The psalmist talks about the wicked, the people that are responsible for the oppression, the evil that he's experiencing or that he's seeing in the world around him. And what does he say about the wicked? Look at what, he, what the wicked is and what he does. The wicked are, verse 2, they're arrogant. Verse 3, they boast. Verse 4, they're prideful. Verse 5, the wicked prosper at all times. Verse 7, the wicked is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Verses 8 and 9, particularly poignant this week. He sits in ambush in the villages, and hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. It's what the wicked are and what they do. Listen to what the wicked say about and say to God. Listen to the voice of the wicked. Verse 4, there is no God. Verse 11, foolish, the wicked says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face and he will never see it. God either doesn't exist or he doesn't see what's happening. Now just a aside, look at the way he addresses God. In, in the very generic God. Okay, this was the broadest, most generic name he could have chosen for God. And we're going to see in a minute that the righteous respond with um, a different word for God. They're both valid, but there's a stylistic difference going on here. The wicked look at the abstract God. And we're going to see in a minute that the righteous look at the very personal covenantal God. But he says there is no God. God doesn't see, he doesn't care. And so there is no room for a faithful question like our psalmist. Because the wicked is not asking a question. He's making a statement. He's not questioning where is God. He's saying he is nowhere. There is no God. And this isn't a faithful question. It's a direct assault on God. He's saying that God hides his faith face rather than showing his faithful love to his people. He turns a blind eye to oppression. Either God doesn't exist, or if he does, he doesn't care. In fact, and here's the hinge for the wicked, God is not good. If he's there, he's not good. And this is an assault on God's character. The voice of the wicked. But look at the voice of the faithful. Verses 12 through 18. This is the second voice that we hear in the psalm. And here, each time as we see the psalmist address God, he, you, you'll see Lord in capital, in capital letters. It's translation of Yahweh. It is God's, it's God's covenantal name. When God appears before Abraham, or excuse me, appears before Moses, and he says, I am that I am, this name captures that. Not only am I God in the abstract, I am the God, and I am your God. The psalmist cries out to his God. And he does two things, the voice of the faithful here. First, he cries out for help, verses 12 through 15. Look at the language there. Arise, O Lord, lift up your hands, forget not the afflicted. In other words, God, please act. Remember what is happening to us. Do something about this. 
verse 11, we had seen that the wicked say God will never see. But look at the faithful in verse 14. But you do see. You do see. God, you know what is happening. And you take it in your hand. In other words, you're going to do something about it. And this is the first part of the consolation that the believer finds here. Because this believer sees that God does see. He knows. He might appear to be hiding, but in fact he is not. God sees the struggle and the oppression that the psalmist is in the middle of. He sees the struggle and the heartache and the evil in our world as well. God knows what happened at Virginia Tech this week. He sees both the victims and the victimizer. God knows how many people died in car bombs in Baghdad this week. He knows and he sees the poor, the defenseless, being oppressed in all corners of our world. He sees the pain and the brokenness and the disillusionment in your own life. God sees and he takes it in his hand. He goes on to say, Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account until you find none. In other words, God, stop the wicked. Render them powerless. Deliver us from them. And it is right for us to cry out to God for an end of wickedness. For God to deliver us. For God to rescue and to work justice for the oppressed. For God to help in the brokenness of life in this world. So he cries out. And the second thing he does, he remembers who his God really is. Verses 16 through 18. See, his cry for help is rooted in a belief about who God is. Verse 16, the Lord is king forever and ever. And this is the second part of his consolation. First part we said is that God sees. Second part of his consolation, not only does God see what's going on, God is king. He's in control. He's the one, sometimes despite appearances, who is seated on the throne He is powerful. He is not outmatched by the evil in our world. The wicked have not gained the upper hand over our God. And then verses 17 and 18, we see the third aspect of our consolation. Not only does he see, not only is he he king, but he is good. He hears the desire of the afflicted and he does something about it. He will strengthen their heart. He will incline his ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man may strike terror no more. See, the psalm ends with the cry of the faithful, not yet seeing their deliverance, but trusting that it will come because God is king, because he sees, he's powerful, and he is good. But there's one more voice in this psalm. The other voice here, Not just the cry of the wicked and not just the cry of the righteous, but we also find the cry of Jesus. Because in light of what we know of Christ, as we look back at this psalm, we can see clearly what the psalmist at best could only see looking ahead dimly through the mist, through the shadows as he looked ahead to what was coming. This remarkable truth. Not simply that God sees the suffering of this world, not only that he cares and that he's king, and that one day he will bring the release and the delivery that we long for, but even more, something remarkable, something that's become so familiar to many of us that we've lost sight of what a powerful, 
hope and perspective that it brings even in a week like this. And here it is. That in the death of Christ, we see that God not only sees our suffering, but he enters into it. He not only cares about our suffering, but he has experienced it himself. Let me read for you the cry of another psalmist crying out to God. This comes from Psalm 22, verses 1 through 2. Listen to how the psalmist begins this psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. And if those words sound familiar to you, it's because this isn't the last time that we hear Psalm 22 in the Bible. These are the words that Jesus takes on his lips as he is being crucified on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we know that God understands the reality of our suffering and our pain, and the brokenness of our world? Because he has experienced it up close himself. Because God didn't hide from our suffering. The Son of God didn't run from suffering, but rather he stepped into it. He took it on that he might ultimately rescue us from it. Don't lose sight of what a radical thing this is that Christ has done for us. There is no other philosophy, and there is no other religion that says that God himself stepped into our world and took our suffering on his own shoulders and bore it that he might free us. Only in Jesus do we find that. And ultimately, this is the Christian's answer to what's called the problem of evil. Not a list of propositions, and not a detailed explanation of the mind of God, not a rationale, but rather the gospel offers us a person, Jesus God becoming flesh, entering into our suffering that he might redeem and save us from our suffering. So where does that leave us on a tragic week like this? It doesn't leave us with a set of answers, the kind we can slap on a tragedy to take away its hurtful edge. It doesn't give us a rationale for God's work in the universe that we can somehow dole out to the people around us who are asking questions. But what are we left with? Well, I think we're left with the assurance that we can and we should and we must bring our hard questions to our faithful God who can handle those questions. And it leaves us with the assurance that the psalmist himself points us to in these last few verses. That God does see that he is in fact king and that he is good. Most importantly, we're left not with a a memo of explanation from this God who stands far off, but we're left with the assurance that whatever suffering and evil and brokenness exist in the world, God knows them from up close because in the person of Jesus, he entered into them himself. And though we may really never fully know why God allows a tragedy like this week's or like the tragedies that happen around the world every week, we can never again say that God holds himself aloof and that he does not understand and that he cannot sympathize. 
Because in Jesus, we see that God did not distance himself from our sufferings, but he embraced it. And we see that our crucified Lord is also our risen Lord, the one who will one day bring full resurrection glory to this world and to us and make our world whole. And you see, in that, there's no explanation, but there is hope because there's the presence of God himself. You know, we come on a week like this looking for explanations, but God gives us something different and something better than what we're asking for. He gives us himself in the person of his son. Let's pray. Father, we do cry out with the psalmist. Weeks like this, it feels like, where are you? Remind us that you are good, that you see, that you are king. And give us hope because you, Lord, have stepped into our world. You do not hold yourself far off. But you stand with us. And we give you thanks. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now, as we said, this week and this morning together, we're doing two things. We're both mourning and trying to look honestly at tragedy that's happened around us. And we're also, as a body, rejoicing because God, in fact, does continue to build his church. And God, our King who reigns, does, in fact, continue to do his good work in this world. And we see that in the lives of people. And one of the ways the Lord brings that home to us is the people that he brings into our fellowship, into our body, to be a part of this church with us. So this morning we're doing what we do a couple times a year, which is to welcome new members into our church. You'll find in your bulletin a a list of the folks who are joining this morning. And what I'd like to do now is to invite those of you who uh, who are coming into the church this morning, if you would come up. Uh, and kind of line up in a semicircle up here behind me, we're going to introduce you to the congregation. So that means now, please come forward. We know who you are. You have the flowers on your lapel, so you're already, you're already out there. Come on up. <laughs> 